Let's pray together. Father, we we are so blessed by you. We are sinners through and through. We cannot please you. We cannot obey you. We cannot offer anything of value to you whatsoever. And yet, you love us freely. You save us of your own work through the blood of your Son. You freely give yourself to us in the Holy Spirit. So Father, I pray that we would not be ungrateful. That our hearts and our minds would not be focused on what we do not have. Father, that we would recognize just how blessed we are. And Father, today as we look together at your word, I pray, Father, that you would bless this time. That you would use me, that you would use it to speak to our hearts. To help us, Lord, to flee from sin and to put our trust in Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. If you would turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7. If you grabbed one of our sermon listening guides or you're taking notes on your own, the title of today's message is, What is Sin? What is Sin? In the beginning of the Scriptures, in the book of Genesis, we read the account of how God created the world and everything in it. He created everything around it too, but that's a different sermon for a different day. And this creation culminates, the the climactic point of it is that God creates man. He creates forms with his hands from the dust of the ground this creature made in his image and he breathes life into it and then he decides that that creature shouldn't be alone and so he causes a deep sleep to fall on him and he takes one of his ribs and he forms a woman breathes life into her And the creation, man and woman included, the Bible tells us was good. This isn't a statement of enjoyment or appreciation as in God did a good job making all things. He did, but that's not what the text is talking about. It's rather a statement on the moral purity of creation. That God made all things and they are unstained with sin. And unfortunately, that goodness did not last And Adam and Eve, deceived by the serpent, deceived by their own sinful hearts, their own hearts, fell into sin. Eve wanted to be like God. Adam wanted to please his wife. And here we are. In that moment, creation was no longer good. Sin entered into the world, polluting all creation. And sin doesn't just spread uncleanness. Romans 5.12 tells us 
Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, we see that as a result of this sin, death exists. Before this point, the intention of, the intention of God in, in humanity is that we would live forever. There would be no death. No pain, no suffering, no sorrow. And yet, that's what happens. Later, God gives His people the law so that they would understand all that it takes to obey and to honor Him with their lives and to live in ways that cause them to, to stand out from the world, to be set apart. But there's a problem. No one can keep the law. No man, no woman, no child can obey God's law. It's literally impossible. And that is because the law was never intended to be the mechanism by which God's people were saved. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24, it says this, Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. You see, God made a promise immediately after the fall. Before He put Adam and Eve out of the garden, He made a promise that He would send a Redeemer to deal with sin once and for all. And it's trusting in that promise that is the true hope for salvation for mankind. Jesus has only ever been the only way to God. And where we find ourselves this morning as we continue our journey through Mark's gospel is at a sort of intersection between those who hope in the law or their version of it and hope in the Redeemer himself. And so like I said before, what, what we're going to consider today is the question of what is sin? And in particular, I want us to talk about two things that Jesus is teaching in this text that reframe the understanding of God's people when they think about sin. So let's look together at Mark chapter 7. And we're going to first look at verses 1 through 13. And if you're following along in our listening guide, uh, that point there, the first point that we're going to see is dishonoring with distance. Dishonoring with distance distance. Mark chapter 7 verses 1 through 13. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of, the, some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. 
For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If a man tells his father or mother, Whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things you So Jesus is approached by some of the local Pharisees as he's going from community to community, region to region, town to town. The Pharisees in that town are the ones who often come to oppose him. And this is no different. These local Pharisees come, but this time there are some scribes, some religious teachers who have come all the way from Jerusalem. Jesus' fame has spread out into all the region. And, and some people are seeking Jesus to be healed or to be helped. The religious leaders are seeking him to try to discredit him, to try to destroy him. And so you have some that have come from Jerusalem and some who were there locally. And so they come to Jesus and they want to ask a question. They show up trying to discredit him and they have a question. Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. They notice that Jesus' followers aren't washing their hands before they eat. Now, to be clear, this is not a hygiene issue, okay? This is not saying they need to go use some soap and water before they eat. Like, that's just good practice. That's not what they're talking about. Because the text tells us, that their hands are defiled. They are eating with hands that are defiled. This has to do with the idea of being cleansed from impurity before the Lord. You see, significant portions of the law that God gave to his people had to do with seeking to prevent the spread of uncleanness. This uncleanness typically had to do with death, but not just death. It also had to do with other things like bodily discharges and things of that nature. All of those things could make you unclean. And so, when you come into contact with these unclean things, or you perform an activity that is unclean, you are required to perform ritual cleansing in order to be clean and not pass this uncleanness on to others. And different unclean things have different ritual cleansings that you have to follow. Ladies who are undergoing their weekly menstrual cycle, they have a different ritual cleansing than someone who happens to touch a dead animal. Okay? So there are different ritual cleansings that come into play. And this is most prominently seen in regulations about how the priests are supposed to ritually cleanse themselves before performing their priestly duties. In Exodus chapter 40, verse 12, it says, Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water. So before the priests are to go into the temple or the tabernacle and do the, the priestly things that they do, they're supposed to take a special kind of bath so that they are cleansed from uncleanness. Now, the parenthetical statement in verse 3 gives us some insight into what has happened with these commands. Because Mark feels it, Peter, through Mark, feels it important for us to understand that this is not something that comes from the law. This is something else. Because it says in verse 3, for the Pharisees, 
And all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other such traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. That's verses 3 and 4. You see, the religious leaders, in their zeal to safeguard the people from sin, have erected these barricades around uncleanness. They're trying to protect the people. This is, they have good intentions. They're trying to make sure, hey, we're going to keep you as far away from sin as possible. So they put up these barricades that require extra things that are not in the law. And the line of thinking probably went something like this. You know, you never know when you might become accidentally unclean. You just don't know. Someone may have touched something that's unclean and then shook someone else's hand. And then that person may have set out food at the market that you just touched. And voila, now you're unclean. So because you don't know, you better make sure. So before you, before you go home and eat, you better wash your hands. And you better wash your cups and your pots and your, your, your copper vessels. And look, just, just to be safe, wash your dining couch too, all right? Ritually cleanse your dining room table and chairs. Remind anybody of the early days of COVID when we didn't know what exactly was spreading COVID and people are Lysoling literally everything. You're buying a bag of apples from the market and you're taking out every apple out and wiping it with a Lysol wipe. That's what's happening here. And this, this extra thing has spread out into all the people. But notice that this is not from the law. This is the tradition of the elders. He makes sure that he points that out. Thankfully, the scribes and Pharisees don't call it the law when they accuse Jesus on the issue, but notice that they treat it with the same urgent necessity for obedience. They don't call it the law. They don't say, hey, your disciples are breaking the law. But they do treat it as something that is disqualifying to Jesus. They do treat it as something that must be obeyed. What they're doing is they're trying to show the crowds that Jesus isn't truly a righteous man because if he were, then his disciples would be properly washing before they ate. See what's happening here? They're trying to discredit Jesus by showing, well, he doesn't do things the right way. Jesus responds to them very strongly. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus quotes Isaiah in talking about the people of God and says, listen, you guys think that you are righteous and you honor me with your mouths. You say, I worship God. I'm, 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 a, I'm a child of Abraham. I am a part of Israel. God is my Lord. I worship him. But their heart is far from him. Paul talks about this in the book of Romans, where he talks about circumcision. And he says the only circumcision that really matters is circumcision of the heart. He says you can be outwardly circumcised, you can be outwardly obedient, 
But if your heart is not cleansed, if your heart is not committed to the Lord, it means nothing. And Jesus rightly recognizes that that's what's happening here. And their worship is in vain. Because what do they really love? They love their legalism. They love being able to say, well, look how obedient and good and righteous I am. When in reality, if your heart is truly drawn to God, then you realize, I am not righteous. I am a wretched, despicable sinner who is in need of the grace of God. And Jesus says that they reject and leave God's commands in order to establish their own way. And he gives a real-world example of this. See, what would happen is, the elders established this tradition where they would say, hey, listen, you can do what's called declare your, your money and your possessions as Corbin. In other words, given to God. All of this belongs to the Lord. And when you do that, you are no longer bound or obligated to do anything else with it aside from, if you so desire, to give it to the temple. And so what people would do is when their parents would get up in age and it was time for them to start taking care of their parents, their parents were too old to work and they needed someone to take care of them, they would just say, oh, well, I'm sorry. I've given all my stuff to God. I can't take care of you. I'm not permitted to do this thing that I am commanded to do by God. It's a loophole that they invented so that they could seem righteous, right? It sounds really righteous to say, listen, all my stuff belongs to the Lord. But in reality, what are they doing? They're just being selfish. They're just trying to bypass what God has commanded them to do in order to have their own selfish gain. And Jesus points out to them, you are teaching as doctrine the commandments of men. You are violating God's law in these things that you are putting out to the people. Brothers and sisters, outward obedience without inward devotion is neither obedience or helpful. Because you cannot obey the law. Even when you think you obey the law, you cannot obey the law. Jesus' teaching on this is very clear. Jesus said, you say I've never murdered anyone. But I tell you, if you have ever hated someone in your heart, you are guilty of murder. You say, I've never committed adultery. And I say to you, if you have ever lusted after someone who is not your spouse, guess what? You are an adulterer. There is no such thing as outward obedience without inward devotion. It's impossible. You cannot obey God because all you do is sin. And we're going to see that in just a minute. And what happens is the Pharisees try to put up these safeguards to keep people from sinning without ever addressing the actual problem. And what it ends up doing is it ends up leading people away from actual obedience and just substituting your own traditions for God's Word. This is what the Catholic Church has done. Over the course of centuries, 
They have substituted their own traditions in place of God's word. That's what led to the Protestant Reformation. Was that people, priests, particularly Martin Luther, started going, hey, um, none of this stuff is in the Bible that you guys are talking about. It actually violates the scriptures. What, why are you doing this? What is going on? And that's exactly what was happening. Because anytime you try to safeguard obedience without addressing the heart, you end up just straying away from the word. Because the word is very clear. Christ deals with the heart first. That leads us to our next point in verses 14 through 23. We see defilement from within. Verse 14 through 23. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus then reshapes understanding of clean and unclean by explaining that it is not what is outside that makes us unclean, but we are already unclean on the inside. You see, what the Jews did not understand is that the law, the ritual cleansings, were not actually making them clean. The ritual cleansings were showing them just how unclean they were. That was the whole point. There was no level of washing with water that they could do that would make them holy enough to come into the presence of God. That was not a possibility. It was a symbol pointing ahead to the washing of water and the washing of blood that takes place in Christ and in baptism. That's what he's pointing to. Because, as we see in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Listen, folks, I don't know how you can get much more clear than that verse to say that we are wicked to the core. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is zero wiggle room in that. You can't be like, well, on Tuesdays from 2.45 p.m. to 3.15 p.m., there's some goodness there, right? No. Well, what about, what about on a really sweet day like my, my wedding day or, or the day that my children are born? Maybe it's good. No. Every intention of every thought of every heart is only evil continually. There is no way around that. There is no escape from that. And listen. There is no amount of washing that you can do that can cleanse a wicked heart. It's just not going to happen. You see, the scribes and Pharisees thought that they could control their uncleanness with obedience. They thought, well, if I obey the law, then I'm clean. 
And when that didn't work, they thought that they could just wash it away. But it's clear that there is a much deeper issue at play. And listen, what Jesus is saying here is absolutely mind-blowing for the people who hear it. It's one thing for Jesus to say, hey, listen, guys, you misunderstand murder. You think it's just the actual physical action. It's in your heart, too. It's one thing for him to say that. You can kind of make that connection. It is a totally different thing for Jesus to take the law that they had been submitted to and taught every moment of their lives since they were born and say, hey, listen, all that washing you think makes you clean, it doesn't. It doesn't. And so the disciples, understandably, do not understand this. And so when they go away by themselves, they say, um, hey, Jesus, what? Can, can you shed some light on this for us? And so he explains it further using food laws. Jews have things that they are not permitted to eat, particularly pork. They're missing out on bacon. Shame, shame. They're not allowed to eat pork. There's other things that they're not supposed to do, like they're not supposed to have meat and cheese together. So no cheeseburgers, no bacon cheeseburgers. Oh boy, sad day. And Jesus tells them, what goes into the body does not make it unclean. And he uses biology to explain why. He says, hey, listen, you eat something unclean, it goes into the stomach, then it goes out. And I don't have to explain how it goes out. Everybody here knows. I'm sure we've all read Everybody Poops at some point. So he says, what goes into you is not what makes you unclean. It's not things from outside the body that make you sinful. Sinfulness comes from within. Out of the heart of men comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. You want to protect yourself from being defiled by things outside? It's too late. You are already defiled because of what is in your heart. You cannot escape it. You can't hide from it. You can't wash it away. It's there, and it's going to keep coming out. The Jews thought that they couldn't eat these unclean things because it would make them unclean. But they were already unclean. They were already unclean. And the whole purpose of these food purity laws was to set them apart from the world around them as a picture of how the church of Christ was going to be set apart from the world around it, from around us. And so Jesus, in this teaching, as we see in the parenthetical statement in verse 19, declares all foods clean. So you know what Jesus does right here? He opens up bacon cheeseburgers for everybody. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. But something even more significant is happening here than manufacturing my favorite order at Five Guys. There's something even more significant here. And that is this. Think about it. Think about being a Jewish person. 
who has all of these special laws that you have to follow, who has all of these foods that you're not allowed to eat. And let's say that your next door neighbor happens to be a Gentile. And they say to you, hey, you want to come over for dinner? And you're like, well, sure. So you show up for dinner, and they're serving pork chops smothered in cheese with a nice side of crispy bacon. And you have to go, thanks, but no thanks. I can't eat any of this because it will make me unclean. Now, think about it like this. I know we like to think like Baptists are unique because of our affinity for food and potlucks and casseroles and all that stuff. We're not unique. That is a human condition. We bond over food. So ask yourself, how much fellowship can a Jew and a Gentile really have if they can't really ever sit down and break bread together? Because you don't know if they've prepared that food in a way that is in accordance with God's law. You don't know if at some point maybe the meat touched the cheese before it got cooked because that's not okay. You just don't know. And so you can't. And so when Jesus here declares all foods clean, he is also doing something incredible. He is taking down a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Because in his church, Jews and Gentiles come together, fellowship together, do life together, week after week, day after day, and guess what? Now we can. There is no food that a Jewish person can't eat that a Gentile might make. Because all foods are clean. Because uncleanness comes from within. You see that? Just as God took down the wall of separation in Jesus Christ between God and man... Jesus is taking down a wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. What an incredible thing to do in the, middle of a, in the middle of a lesson on sin. To take that and say, you can be together. And so notice here what Jesus is saying. That all of us are sinners at our core. All of us are wicked. All of us are like the Pharisees in that we are far from God. No matter how much we honor him with our lips, apart from a work of God, we are separated from him. And so that's what's happening here. We see Jesus breaking these things down. Now, before I go further, I want to make, I want to make a point really clear here. Because sometimes when we think about sin, we have this tendency to think about sin in unhelpful ways. So in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, you don't have to turn there, just listen. But in John chapter 9, Jesus and his disciples are out walking. And it says this, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The tendency in that culture, and sometimes in ours, is to think, the physical ailments that we have are a result of sinfulness. And the disciples asked a very common question in Jewish life. There's a man born blind. Well, was it his sin that made him blind? Or was it his parents' sin? Because somebody sinned. Think about Job's friends. When they come to Job, what do they say? Job, none of this would have happened to you if you didn't sin. Just fess up and it'll be over. And Job keeps going, I didn't sin. I didn't sin. Yeah, you did, man. This, would not, this doesn't happen to innocent people. God doesn't make innocent people blind. Somebody sinned, right? 
But what does Jesus say? It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Brothers and sisters, sometimes your ailment exists strictly that God might be glorified in you. The man born blind, you know how God was glorified in him? Jesus healed him. He spit in the dirt and made some mud and rubbed it on his eyes. And then he could see. And it was so incredible that he was walking around and people were like, hey, where's that blind guy at? And he's like, hey, that's me. They're like, no, 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 no. No, there was a blind guy here. Yeah, that was me. No, 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 buddy, listen. This, this guy, Jeff, he used to sit out here. He was blind. He's like, I can't see, I can't see. And yeah, that was me. Jesus spit in the dirt and made some mud. And I can see now. It was a way to showcase the mighty works of God. But guess what? Just like healing a blind man is a mighty work of God, you know what else is? Showcasing faithful obedience and love for God when you have an ailment that never goes away. What did the Lord say to Paul when Paul prayed that the thorn in his flesh would be taken away? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so, brothers and sisters, listen, if, there's, if your body is aching, if you've got problems that will not resolve, you might be tempted to go, have I, have I upset God to, to do this to me? Don't think that way. Don't think that way. You have that ailment to showcase the mighty works of God in your life. If you find out tomorrow you have a terminal illness, guess what? God might heal you, but he also might not. And one way or another, you are called to glorify God in your body until you draw your final breath. Another way that we are tempted to, to think about sin is to think that well, as long as we don't sin, we're okay. As long as we don't sin, we're okay. In Luke chapter 13, it says this, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they come, to, they come to Jesus and they're talking to him about how Pilate had gone in probably to a tabernacle during some sort of, of sacrificial time and he put down an uprising violently and killed them there. And their blood was mingling with the sacrifices, which is a huge, huge no-no under the law. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? Do you, do you think that this was just because they were worse people than you because they were bigger sinners than you? Jesus says, no, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? So at some point, some sort of disaster happened. A tower fell, killed 18 people. And Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? What we know about sin tells us no, because we are all wicked from within. And Jesus says to them, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Why do some people suffer and other people not? To draw us to repentance. That's the whole thing there. Jesus is saying, don't look upon other people and go, man, sure glad that's happened to them and not me. And rightly recognize, if I don't repent of my sin, that's going to be me too. Do you understand here? 
Jesus is trying to make them understand it's not your sin that causes your infirmities. Sometimes it is, okay? Like, if you are promiscuous throughout your life and you get an STD that causes you to have significant physical issues, yes, that is a consequence of your sin, okay? But not every physical consequence, not every life consequence is a direct result of sin. Sometimes it's just so that God can showcase his might in you. And when you see things like this happen, when you see disasters unfold in the world, recognize that it is sin that has caused that, that death and destruction in the world. And unless you repent and believe in Jesus Christ, you will likewise perish. That same death and destruction is coming for you. It might not be a tower falling on your head. It might not be a wicked tyrant coming in and killing you while you're at church. It might be that you die in your sleep at a ripe old age of 112 or whatever it may be. But guess what? If you died apart from Christ without repenting and believing the gospel, you are going to the exact same place that every other sinner goes to, and that's to hell, where God's wrath is going to be poured out upon you forever. And so what we must do, as Jesus said in Luke, is we must repent. We must seek forgiveness from Jesus Christ. We must turn to Christ and away from sin. Those are not separate events, okay? You cannot come to Jesus and forsake sin later. Those things don't happen independently of one another. You repent and believe the gospel. They happen simultaneously, and they only happen because of the work of God in giving us a new heart. They only happen because of that work. The Pharisees thought that they could flee from sin without truly turning to God. And they thought that because they were wicked. Don't fall into that Pharisaical trap today. Don't think, I can turn to God and get my fire insurance and do right things when people are watching but still have a wicked heart, and I'm okay. That's not how this works. So today, I, I, I beg you, I plead with you, I implore you to place your trust in Jesus to forgive your sins. This is the hope of the gospel, the fulfillment of the promise that God made all the way back in the Garden of Eden, that he would send a redeemer. And finding your hope in Christ, forsake your sin out of love and gratitude for the gospel. And so if you're here today and you already know Jesus, that's awesome. That blesses my heart. But that doesn't mean that you're done. That doesn't mean that you can say, okay, well, thanks, preacher. This is really fun, but I don't have to take anything away from this. Wrong. You need to examine your heart to be sure that you are forsaking sin. Not outwardly, but inwardly. You might not go beat up your neighbor, but you might want to. You might not hate this person or that person. You might, not, you might not go kill them, but you really don't like them. You sure do hate them. You might have bitterness in your heart toward them. Examine your own heart to be sure that you are forsaking sin and that you are forsaking sin for the right reason. Don't try to forsake sin to please God. Don't try to forsake sin because you think it's going to make you holy because there's only one thing that makes you holy, and that is the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ that has been given to you by God. That's it. 
Don't trust in works. Don't be a legalist like the Pharisee because like I said previously, even repentance is a fruit of the gospel because we cannot do good works apart from Christ. And listen to me. I want want you to hear me really, really clearly. If you say that you are a Christian and you will not forsake sin, you are not a Christian. The Bible is very, very explicit on this. If you say, I love Jesus, but you don't repent of your sin, you do not love Jesus. You need to be converted. And so today, the calling is twofold. Christians, don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Don't try to be justified by your works. Don't give in to sin. Be free in Christ and obey Him freely. In just a moment, Brother Scott is going to come and we're going to sing together. We're going to have a time of invitation. I will be down front and I would be glad to pray with you, to talk with you, to share with you, to help you to understand how you too can repent and believe the gospel. And if you are here today and you know Christ and you, you have repented and believed the gospel and you just need someone to pray with you and encourage you, I would be glad to do that too. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for showing us in your scripture the depth of our sin and how badly we need salvation in Christ. And so today, Father, I pray that we would not trust in ourselves, that we would not trust in our righteousness, that we would not trust in any kind of good work that we think that we can do or provide, but Father, that we would trust in Christ and Christ alone. That we would know and understand that our sinfulness is embedded deep within us and it cannot be removed by anything other than a work of the Holy Spirit giving us a new heart. And I pray today, Father, that if anyone here does not know Christ, that you would perform that work in them. Give them a new heart. Draw them to repentance. That they would be saved today. And Father, for those of us here who do know and believe Jesus Christ, that we do have Him as our Lord, I pray, Father, that we would honor Him in our lives. Not because we can earn favor, but because we love Him. Help us to love Him more today, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.